Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Sunday, April 10th, 2022. I'm the Bitcoin Dad, and this week I'm alone because Chris is attending the Jupiter Broadcasting East Coast meetup in Raleigh, North Carolina. I think that happened yesterday, Saturday. Hopefully you went and had a good time because it sounded like they were going to have a lot of fun. I've been doing a lot of reading about Bitcoin criticism both inside the Bitcoin community, kind of the constructive criticism of examining one's own biases. And there's a really interesting article about that by Pete Rizzo, the Bitcoin journalist that I want to discuss. And then there's also a external critique, or perhaps attack, depending on how triggered you feel, which is a video that then showed up on Ezra Klein's New York Times podcast which I found kind of interesting, and I think Bear is talking about. We also have some privacy news, some good stuff and bad stuff, a bit of Bitcoin education. I'm going to share some more educational resources and a really amusing article, which I don't know if it's a joke or not, but it's kind of cool. And then we have a whole bunch of boosts. I really appreciate the boosts. It's a great way to talk with the community, and I laughed at quite a few of them. Pete's article is called Bitcoin After 2140, Differing Views on the Future of the Future of Money. Kind of a self-referential title, and that's the theme of the article, which is basically an exploration of Bitcoin maximalism and how this core belief structure in Bitcoin, which some would view as almost religious, came to be, and the nuances. And basically, he thinks that Bitcoin maximalism broadly falls into three categories. Monetary maximalism, which are probably the loudest. Those, these are the Austrian hard money, digital gold Bitcoiners. Platform maximalism, which is probably the most overlooked group. This would be people like Paul Storks or maybe Ruben Somson, who are developing scaling technologies to both enable more Bitcoin users and also more Bitcoin use cases. So this is like Bitcoin as a platform, as an extensible piece of software that can get more features over time. And then network maximalists. And network maximalism in Rizzo's definition is essentially the core developers. And I I personally experienced what he's talking about. Essentially, the more you learn about Bitcoin, the more you understand the software that underlies it, the less confident you get in anything because you can see how the sausage is made and once you see how the sausage is made you can't believe the religion that the pigs were always happy or something basically as you understand the challenges the real technical challenges of bitcoin working as a system you have to question how it will survive and i don't mean this in a dramatic way i just mean you have to confront how complicated and difficult it is to make software that works and software that can survive being attacked I don't want to just summarize the article because it bears reading, but Rizzo points out that the loudest voices in Bitcoin are probably the monetary maximalists. And I think this is likely because Bitcoin monetary maximalism is a very succinct meme. It's easy to understand. It's actually very intuitive because understanding the gold standard or finite hard money, this is pretty reasonable. Uh, It's very logical. Whereas, in contrast, our current fiat system is complex and hard to understand, which I'll actually get to later, because like every good episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod, modern monetary theory has to peek its head in at some point, but we'll get to that later. So the problem, I think I can say Rizzo thinks there's a problem here, is that monetary maximalism in Bitcoin is a sort of stagnant philosophy. Essentially, Bitcoin is already won by the metrics of the monetary maximalists because it seems to have achieved some network effect that makes it unassailable by other cryptocurrencies. And it functions as very good money. And so basically just hodl. And even if Bitcoin development stops today, it'll be this lifeboat of value as the fiat world collapses around us due to bad policy in the future. So why is that problematic? Well, if we look at it from a platform maximalist standpoint, essentially the less features you build into Bitcoin, the more altcoins you're going to have. And most altcoins lose all their value over time. So the more people who invest, the more people are hurt. Basically, you could say that adding features to Bitcoin is harm reduction. I would also say that Bitcoin has very close to 0% global adoption today. 
probably not even 1% of the human race has interacted with the Bitcoin blockchain directly or indirectly. So can it scale over 100x or 1 million x, whatever the multiple is? I think the answer is no, not as it is today. Lightning is an example of platform maximalism, of creating new features and a new layer on top of Bitcoin that both scales the protocol and also enables new use cases because the lightning transactions happen so quickly that suddenly we can monetize things in new ways and do micropayments and stuff. The Blockstream liquid sidechain is an example of this platform maximalist approach. It's another layer on Bitcoin that provides a platform for issuing assets and doing confidential transactions. It's very interesting. You could even say that BISC, the decentralized exchange that I mentioned in my previous midweek focused episode, is also sort of a, an offshoot of Bitcoin platform maximalism because it's like protocol for decentralized exchange that interacts with Bitcoin. And in fact, I believe there's a project called TBDEX that is trying to take what BISC is doing and implement it differently and potentially more scalably or something. So this is all very positive. I think that while it's true that if we look at the hard numbers of Bitcoin network throughput, it's hard to imagine how this is going to scale to accommodate the whole human race today. I also think that there are many technologies that could enable global scaling, but we really don't want yet because there just isn't the demand. So there's sort of a chicken egg cart horse. There's a sequence here. And maybe we need desperate demand to spur the next explosion of platform innovation. That's one theory. Now, the last point is the network maximalism argument. And this is very close to my heart. And I think this is actually the core of the Bitcoin value proposition and what distinguishes Bitcoin from all of the altcoins. I mean, all of the altcoins. And the answer is network maximalism is all about maintaining decentralization in the Bitcoin network. And decentralization is very tricky. It's hard to define. It's hard to maintain. Is the development process decentralized enough? Well, it's hard to create metrics around that. It's sort of a qualitative matter of opinion. I would say yes, probably. The Bitcoin network, is the network decentralized enough? I would say yes. Bitcoin has more nodes than any other project. The consensus and power distribution between miners and validating nodes has been tested during the block wars, and it clearly works because validator nodes, while they don't have a direct financial incentive in the consensus process like miners do, if you poke them, if you make enough validators annoyed, then they don't run the software the miners want them to run, and suddenly the miners are forced to follow the validators. This is very cool. It's very anti-fragile. But like I was saying before about when you see how the sausage is made, you look at the pig differently. Basically, decentralization is sort of a delicate flower that can wilt in your hand quite easily. Other chains have started trending towards decentralized and then centralized very quickly because they made some engineering trade-offs that resulted in centralization. Ethereum is the classic example. It was supposed to be a low-cost utility protocol that was going to be decentralized. I mean, obviously it had to be because they had a blockchain. The only reason to build your system with a blockchain is to do some form of decentralized consensus. But very quickly, the success of their platform, and this is a, a word of warning for platform success, led to high fees and their extensibility, the expressiveness of the Ethereum platform led to all sorts of throughput issues that resulted in their blockchain centralizing onto powerful servers run in data centers. So I would say that network is very, very centralized. In fact, I think you could probably shut down Ethereum in an afternoon if you were so inclined. All you need to do is send a strongly worded legal letter to Infura, the company that runs the majority of the Ethereum nodes on AWS. Or maybe you could just talk to AWS directly and say, whatever you want. You know, this is a naughty activity. Turn it off, kids. I think they'd have a real problem if that happened. So clearly that's not a very anti-fragile network. And if you don't have a anti-fragile network, you're quite limited in sort of how impactful your whole system can be. Basically, if you're too successful, if you start disrupting the wrong people, the wrong institutions, the, the angry letters start getting sent and the, uh, all the choke points start choking. So what's the point of this article? I think the point is to think about our assumptions around Bitcoin and to be thoughtful and realistic 
about the challenges that this system and this community faces. Sometimes I worry that I sound not bullish or concerned about the future. It's not the case. Rather, I think it's really important to look at the challenges with eyes wide open so that when the next crisis strikes, we are prepared. The Bitcoin community and ecosystem is ready to deploy the next plan, whether it's any prevout to enhance lightning or blind merged mining to enable merge mine chains like Paul Storks once. It's important to be mentally prepared. As I think Sherlock Holmes once said, chance favors the prepared mind. I think Bitcoin demonstrates that chance favors the robustly engineered blockchain with a strong and thoughtful community. Moving on, there are two data points that came to mind when I read this article, and these are going to be two somewhat critical recent events surrounding Bitcoin. The first is was brought to my attention by Alex Gladstein, who mentioned that if you look into what people in the third world in poorer countries are doing with cryptocurrency, they're actually not using that much Bitcoin. There's a heck of a lot of altcoining going on, including MLM coins, which are just pure scams. There's a great podcast called The Missing Crypto Queen about the OneCoin conspiracy. And OneCoin was a multi-level marketing coin. It was a multi-level marketing scam that used cryptocurrency as the supposed product at the heart of it to try and you know, pass through the legal loophole of MLM. But it was pretty bad. And unfortunately, all the people, not all, but most of the people involved with OneCoin, they just immediately went to the next MLM scam coin. And it's just, it's just very sad to hear people wasting their time and energy and money and savings on a scam that's going to zero when they could have just bought Bitcoin and they'd be doing much better today if they had done so. But essentially, why is this happening? Well, I think the scamming, it's hard to imagine what you can do about the scamming, but why is Tether so useful for people in the developing world? And I think the answer is that the world is currently denominated in dollars. And so holding Bitcoin is a volatile and stressful experience. And if you don't have a lot of resources, if you don't have the ability to do long-term savings, Bitcoin is still a pretty risky bet. So people use digital dollars and Tether is a part of that digital dollar ecosystem. It's a relatively shady part of it. There's some great journalism around Tether, very dramatic story, but it works. And it works on any blockchain, and it's better on low-cost blockchains. So Tether is issued on a lot of altcoin chains that are very junky, but it lets people pay and save in dollars. And unfortunately, the underlying infrastructure is not very secure and will, may disappear one day. But in the meantime, this is for people with high time preference, so it works for them. Unfortunately, I don't see how Bitcoin can fill that gap right now, but I'm glad that there are other options out there at the risk of sounding like an altcoiner. The other article I wanted to bring up was about the Canadian government's sanction of the Ottawa truckers. It's a controversial story because the truckers were not very popular in Canada and they received a lot of donations from, I think we can generally say, the right side of the American political spectrum. And some of these donations were in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Now, there are two parts to this story. The first is that the Canadian government deployed financial sanctions against these truckers before they deployed police. That, in my mind, is a very worrying trend because, like it or not, the Canadian truckers represent a political movement. It was a disorganized one. It was arguably an incoherent one. But they represent a protest movement. And when you start sanctioning protest movements, I think that's basically the death of civil society and having polite elections. Because it's just so easy and scalable. It's a weapon that once you use it, you have to use it again. So it's, it's a line. A line has been crossed there. And I expect more politically motivated financial sanctions, probably targeting both sides or many different groups in the political spectrum moving forward. I don't think this is a good sign for anybody. The other disappointing aspect to that protest was that the cryptocurrency financial support for the truckers didn't seem particularly powerful. It sort of seems that the financial surveillance powers of a first world country are sufficient to neuter many cryptocurrency on-ramps and off-ramps that people would use today. 
And that speaks to essentially the lack of infrastructure around Bitcoin to spend it and exchange it in a way that doesn't require KYC and financial surveillance. And I think that will be solved with time. It's still hardly adopted, so doesn't make a whole lot of financial sense for many businesses to invest in accepting Bitcoin. The other issue is clearly the lack of privacy in Bitcoin. Again, this is a known issue, one that is sort of dealt with by some technologies like CoinJoin or like confidential transactions on the liquid sidechain. But people using Bitcoin in an adversarial environment like a political protest, they need to be educated about how to use Bitcoin safely and privately and the gotchas inherent in that. So I think there's a long way to go before Bitcoin fulfills its promise of unstoppable money that enables people to be powerful and express themselves even in the face of overwhelming opposition. Okay, so the next critique of Bitcoin is external. It's two no-coiners sort of throwing shade at Bitcoin. And there are two parts to this. There's a video that showed up on YouTube a couple weeks ago, but I only watched it last week. And I heard about it because I listened to the Ezra Klein podcast. A little background on Ezra. He's a contributor to the New York Times, or maybe he's not. Anyway, he works for the New York Times podcast. He used to work for Vox, and he's very thoughtful. You might say too thoughtful. Sometimes when I hear him talk, he just really seems to be wringing his hands in sort of liberal guilt. Sometimes it's almost a parody, but I think his heart's in the right place. And he has great guests on and often asks interesting questions. For example, he once had an episode of his podcast with a professor of religion who wrote a book about religion and UFOs. The book is called American Cosmic, and it is just so amusing and interesting. I really recommend that episode and that book. But this video is produced by a YouTuber called Folding Ideas, and he's kind of a storyteller based on his other videos, and he is really pissed off about NFTs. I think that he made the video essentially as a response to the rampant NFT scamminess that is just swamping the creative space because, of course, NFTs, as they currently exist, seem to be a way to directly monetize a creative following because it's like selling art, but it's art on a blockchain. And therefore, there's this blockchains are like Bitcoin. Bitcoin's like really gone up in value. So, like, I could speculate on this, right? And there's just a lot of scammy marketing around NFTs right now. And I think that they are all essentially worthless, frankly. So what's going on here? Essentially, the video is interesting, kind of long for me, and the criticisms could have been put into a one-page document, but the critiques are real. Essentially, I could say one good quote that comes from the video is that crypto scams can turn notoriety into money. That's a really interesting thought. If you think of Elon and Doge, this guy with a big Twitter following made Doge briefly the number three cryptocurrency and then made it go to zero when he said he was joking about it. But basically, influencers of all shapes and sizes can participate in these NFT Web3 ICO pump and dump scams because even if you're an influencer with a smaller audience, like a couple hundred people, if you can convince them to buy a 10 of 10 NFT issuance, there's so little liquidity in that market that even a couple hundred people bidding for it could really cause that price to moon briefly. I would say that the creator economy, the influencer economy, I don't really know what to think about it. It seems sticky. It seems like we're going to have influencers with us forever now. Maybe yes, maybe no, but these people are always looking for ways to monetize their following, monetize the attention of the people who pay attention to them. And these sort of scammy projects are perfect for that. Now, what's the other side of this? Why is this guy on the Ezra Klein show? Well, it actually comes together quite neatly because Ezra really doesn't know anything about Bitcoin. And so he had a pro-crypto person on his podcast a while ago. And I know you're worried when I said pro-crypto, and you should be. It was actually an associate of A16Z. A16Z is the new name for Andreessen Horowitz, a venture capital company. And A16Z is essentially a Silicon Valley hype factory that funds hundreds of terrible, scammy 
crypto, Web3, NFT type companies, and they put money into these projects and then they promote them because previously when VCs had to only work with companies that would eventually IPO, they had to put real work in making these companies profitable or growing and they had to lock up their money for a long time and didn't have the ability to exit very easily from these deals. So there wasn't a lot of liquidity in these markets. Enter the ICO boom in 2016, 2017, and now NFTs, DeFi, Web3. Notice how no one's talking about DeFi any, anymore? Yeah, it's because DeFi is just another name for this phenomenon of issuing tokens and selling them to people who don't really understand what they're buying. And I think the juice has been squeezed out of the DeFi orange, and now everyone's moving on to NFTs and Web3. So Ezra's problem is that he got the scammiest, worst incentivized pro-crypto person on his podcast, and then he got this pretty good creator who's taking an anti-NFT stance. And if I had to choose between A16Z and the guy explaining why NFTs are a joke, I'm with that guy. So some other insights, or many of these points may be obvious to you, is that the whole current crypto scam space is capitalizing on these memes that are going around that come out of Silicon Valley and the startup culture. The concept of unicorns, of things going to the moon, of getting in early, of diamond hands. These are all sort of memes and ideas that come out that you, you might you might actually get some of these ideas from watching that Silicon Valley TV show. I would say that, you know, maybe Silicon Valley's out of juice and the VCs have moved into the crypto space because that's where they see the uh, the money sloshing around. And I think it's been very good for Andreessen Horowitz. They've made a lot of money and, you know, essentially they've made it with very deceptive marketing. There's a lot of contradictions in the narratives in the Web3 space. I mean, one amusing one is that Web3 is somehow an anti-corporate phenomenon, yet all of these projects are sponsored by corporate VCs, and their goal is to sell themselves to a VC or integrate, uh, sorry, to a corporate or integrate with corporations. There's also this very depressing idea of individually monetizing your data. So rather than rejecting surveillance capitalism, there's this idea that, hey, you know what, if you're going to sell my data, I'm going to sell it. I'm going to make that money. And I guess this idea comes from the fact that Google and Facebook are big companies that clearly make a lot of money using people's data. But the problem is data is only valuable when you have all the data not when you just have your data. So your data alone is worthless, but millions of people's of data, yeah, maybe that's worth something. So it's just all really silly. But what are the, the wrong assumptions here? Well, I think the problem with Ezra and this folding ideas guy is that it's easy to dismiss things that are complicated. And while they have some criticisms of all the scamminess in crypto, they also dismiss Bitcoin and they dismiss it by basically going back three or four years and looking at what, what crazy bullish Bitcoiners were saying and pointing out that a lot of this stuff hasn't happened yet. Bitcoin still isn't the world's currency. It's only the currency of one country, El Salvador. And frankly, that whole experiment is not going great. Another point is that people in the developing world only adopt Bitcoin when things get really, really bad. Yeah, that's true. That's sort of how Bitcoin competes with fiat. It's not easy to use. It's hard. It's potentially risky if you don't have the technical background to understand what it takes to secure a Bitcoin wallet. So, of course, there's energy FUD in here. Wherever you get criticism of Bitcoin, there's energy FUD. And I don't want to get into it right now. We talk about it a lot. But essentially, yes, Bitcoin uses energy. No, in the context of the human race, Bitcoin doesn't use a lot of energy. It uses less far less than 1% of all global energy production in a given year. And as Bitcoin gains more adoption, is it going to use all the energy on the planet? No, that's not how the energy use scales. Also, is using energy inherently bad? No, because you're using it right now to listen to this podcast. And do you have like a, a nice kitchen knife that you really like to use and you paid a lot of money for? I know I do. Well, guess what? There's steel in that knife and it used a lot of energy. In fact, I've heard uh, estimates that 40% of global energy production comes out of steel and mining, you know, metal related stuff. And my kitchen knife probably used even more energy because it's like high speed steel, you know, super hot steel or something. So that's the thing I should be apologizing for, not messing around with Bitcoin, I guess. And then finally, both Ezra and 
Mr. Folding Ideas, are irritated with the financialization of everything. And I think it's easy to see the altcoin plethora of scam coins world as financializing everything. And I think that is a form of sort of misguided platform maximalism. There was this uh, phase in 2017 when there was Denticoin, crypto for dentists, Rupee coin, crypto for Southeast Asia. These are all stupid ideas. The world today is really a dollar system with every other national currency as a layer on top of it. If we were to create individual currencies for every single different human activity, it's actually a return to barter. It's insane. But financialization itself is actually a phenomenon that has developed in the United States as a result of the perverse incentives of a U.S. dollar-backed financial world. So I think it's easy to mix up this greater problem of the fiat world with the scam explosion in altcoin land. But if you spend some time thinking about it, it comes apart pretty fast. I recommend listening to voices like Ezra's because if you listen to a lot of Bitcoin stuff or you don't subscribe to the New York Times, which Chris and I have joked about, it's a good thing to do to listen to someone who has a very different view. And I'd be happy to go on Ezra's show and set him straight. So if you are a listener, send him an email, tell him to give me a call. Now we have some privacy news. I took a deeper look at Rohan Gray's eCash Act, and I decided that I support it. And I am going to, been procrastinating, but I'm going to contact my congressperson and tell them to put their wet signature on it. So essentially, the eCash Act is a act in the U.S. Congress that is suggesting that the Treasury should issue a private digital cash system. And the idea is to use physical hardware devices to do peer-to-peer cash transactions using, and these devices would be preloaded by the Treasury with fixed amounts of dollars. So it would really actually be very similar to physical paper cash, except you would have this little thing like a card or a cassette tape, and you could interact with various merchants and other people with a similar device and maybe just like boop your device to someone else's and send them cash. So I think in, you know, in theory, high level, great idea, super positive, and I'm behind it. Coin Center is behind it. Coin Center is the, the crypto think tank in Washington. They get most of their money from the altcoin projects, but they also provide some cover for Bitcoin as well. So I think they're generally pretty okay. And one thing that's pretty cool about the eCash Act is there's a website which I've linked to, and they have some amazing research in here, some great papers. I linked to the privacy cash and surveillance section, and there are some awesome, awesome articles here. Um, just to quote a few, Banking on Surveillance, the Libra Black Paper. Oh, beautiful. By Americans for Financial Reform. Say no to the cashless future and to cashless stores from the ACLU. This is all good stuff. It's really worth a read. They also have a section on secure hardware-based digital currency technologies. So essentially they're saying, look, we don't know what the right technology is. That's for the treasury to figure out, but here's what's out there. And this is sort of where I think the eCash Act has some problems. I think that the research of Adam Back and Blockstream demonstrates that even when you create your own secure hardware module, like a digital enclave to process transactions, these hardware systems can be compromised. And the better the system, the more expensive the hardware system, the more expensive it is to compromise it. And that's going to be a problem with this eCash Act, because if you need to give millions of people secure hardware devices for private eCash transactions, how expensive can they really be? And the other issue is that unlike, and actually I got into a discussion with Rohan on Twitter about this, and his view is, look, there's going to be counterfeiting, but there's already counterfeiting. So it's not really a change from the status quo. So I don't think we need to worry about it. And I think that he's kind of missing the fact that with digital eCash, counterfeiting hits a whole new scale. So when Bitcoin had an inflation bug, it's not like someone created 10 extra Bitcoin. Someone created a, like a million extra Bitcoin or something. If you give me one of these digital wallets and I can find a way to compromise it, and even if it has like a $500 limit, if I can just keep on spending $500 every second because it hooks up to digital systems on the internet, I might be able to you know, spend $10,000 to compromise it, but make, make that $10,000 back in a minute. I wonder if 
that aspect of this has been considered. But either way, I support the effort because it's important to have people advocating for privacy in finance. And who knows, maybe it could work. I'm very comfortable with the government spending a bunch of money on a pie-in-the-sky moonshot like secured private e-cash as opposed to whatever, you know, terrifying weapon systems and stuff like that that generally gets the funding. So I think that's cool. Okay, now there's some bad privacy news. Cash app has been hacked, apparently by a former employee, and they seem to be contacting about 8 million customers. It's not exactly clear what was gained in the hack, some names, maybe some balances. The implication from their press release is the hackers didn't get everything, so don't worry. But this is very misleading because there's so many data leaks floating around the dark web that if there's anything in there, a name, an email address, that can be joined into a previous data leak. And now maybe they can get your cash app balance from this hack and combine it with some other data and have your email address and your physical address. This is just another example of the dangers of using centralized services, especially financial services, and why considering using decentralized exchanges like BISC and HODL HODL to me seems like a very good idea of how to purchase Bitcoin. And in general, you want to try to mask your privacy, mask your data when using KYC services. And I'm not saying lie about who you are. I'm just saying have a different email for every service, which is easy to use with a tool like Simple Login. Okay, now the next story is a character who I find fascinating and contradictory. Moxie Marlin Spike, who has a very stylish braid and excellent alliteration in his name. He has a cool new Twitter thread, which basically destroys the false privacy assumptions of Telegram. I've known this for years, but I've known a lot of people use Telegram, so I use it. But essentially, Telegram is basically as bad as Facebook Messenger, except maybe with less transparency. So don't use Telegram. Signal, on the other hand, which is the privacy chat app that Moxie created, is good. It definitely provides privacy because Signal is hit with subpoenas all the time, and they reveal what they've given to the authorities, and it's not much. It's basically a bunch of encoded blobby data. But what are the trade-offs of Signal? Well, first of all, I think that you should use Signal if you were going to text message, because text messages are like postcards that everyone reads as they deliver them. I mean, there's no privacy there. Just stop doing it. So Signal will protect you from people in the middle of your conversation looking at your messages. But you do need to use your telephone number to use Signal. So Signal is not anonymous, but it's private, if that makes sense. Also, Moxie is involved with a very dubious altcoin called MobileCoin, and they're trying to integrate this altcoin into Signal. Ouch. Should have just put Bitcoin in there, Moxie. Very lame. Now, the last bit of privacy news is actually positive privacy news, potentially. My favorite secure and uh, private email provider, ProtonMail, has acquired Simple Login, an email masking technology that I also use, and they're going to somehow combine this. I don't know if this is good or bad in the sense that maybe if ProtonMail is also masking your email address, that gives them more data about you. I don't know. I don't know the nuances, but in general, I'm going to give this merger a chef's kiss because I really like both of these products. And if you integrate them together better, that would be cool. Okay, and here is our ad read. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. The self-hosted show is a podcast about running your own servers, Raspberry Pis, VPSs, and just having your own software. It's super fun. If you haven't guessed, I'm totally into self-hosting, and I think it merges nicely with the Bitcoin ethos. My first self-hosting project was actually running a Bitcoin node, uh, which is a very approachable thing to do, and you can do it on a Raspberry Pi. So if you want to learn more about self-hosting in general and meet a fun community who can help you out, check it out at selfhosted.show or search for the self-hosted show in your podcast app. Bitcoin education. I think I will keep this as a reoccurring feature every week. And there's some fun stuff this week. The first thing I want to bring to your attention is an article by Vitalik Buterin, and he released it on April 1st. So, okay, it's probably an April Fool's joke. But the gist of the article, which is published on his personal blog, is that, yeah, maybe the Bitcoiners were right. Maybe Ethereum doesn't really work. He basically points out all of the concerns I've leveled at Ethereum. It's centralization, it's pre-mine, 
It's unfair distribution of coins. It's move fast and break things culture that's resulted in more centralization and the protocol essentially buckling under its own complexity and then attempting to add more complexity to solve these complex problems. It's kind of in a spiral. I recommend giving it a read, and I hope it's not a joke, because reading that sort of makes me think, ah, Vitalik, you're, maybe you're not so bad after all, even though you created Ethereum. Okay, now if you're not aware, the Bitcoin 2022 conference has just happened, or is happening, in Miami, and I've been watching videos and listening to recordings from the open source stage, which has great technical discussion. And I just wanted to bring this up because I was listening to yesterday, maybe the day before's recording, and the Bitcoin PR Review Club was mentioned. This seems like an awesome way to learn about Bitcoin and the Bitcoin development process. So you go to the website and you join their IRC meeting every Wednesday, and they review a Bitcoin core pull request. So a pull request is a request to add new code to the Bitcoin Core repository, and it's uh, it needs to be reviewed. This is the open source development process. People come up with ideas, they express them in code, they hopefully do some testing, and then they try to get it merged into the project to see if it would enhance things, and other people think it's a good idea. And you might think that what's holding Bitcoin back is there's not enough shadowy super coders who are coding new things to make Bitcoin better and faster and whatever, but that's not the case. There are lots of people writing code for Bitcoin. The bottleneck to development is actually code review. So if you want to help out Bitcoin and learn about software and development in general, I think checking out this PR review club would be a good start. Now we're on to feedback. Remember, you can always get in touch at BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter, or you can send in a boost. A boost is a lightning payment, small payment with a message, and it can be sent via a podcasting 2.0 app, such as the Fountain Podcast app or Breeze Wallet. I think also Castomatic on iOS can do that too. So there are quite a few boosts, and I'm going to start from the, the oldest to the most recent. Oh, here's a good one. I got a message from Sir Lurkslot, and he said, this idea... Why spend $5 worth of Bitcoin when it might be worth more down the line? Seems kind of dumb to me. What's the difference if I just donate $5 in fiat? Does the fact you're using BTC really matter? Would you worry over sending fiat because you could have bought yourself some BTC instead? That's a good point. You fret whether Bitcoin dad is going to take that fiver and buy himself BTC with it? If your sats are worth $5 when you send them, then what's the difference? Psychology. Sigh. Oh, actually, that was a question. Psychology? Question mark. Sigh. I think Sir Lurksalon has a good point. I actually am an irrational person, like he was describing. And so when I first got into Bitcoin, I just never wanted to spend it. I just, you know, I just rubbed my hands together, accumulating it. Felt like, oh boy. And then, of course, I lost it all in a screwed up multisig. So didn't do myself any favors. But I think he's got a good point. I mean, you send, spend $5 in coffee or you spend $5 in Bitcoin. It's sort of the same, right? In the moment, you could always send someone Bitcoin and buy the, a replacement amount. Yeah, I mean, I agree completely. I think it's fun to use. It's fun to use new technology. Oh, he also sends a note, which is just pew, pew, pew. That's Chris's signature sound. Thanks. Okay, then our next message is from Jupiter B. Hi, thanks for your podcast. You're welcome. Could you explain the difference between Samurai Wallet and Blue Wallet? Well, yes, I could. So Samurai Wallet is a mobile Bitcoin wallet on Android. You know, it's a Bitcoin wallet. You can connect it to the Samurai Group's node and they'll handle the backend for you. But if you want more privacy, you can run your own Samurai Wallet backend. Now, I think uh, Blue Wallet is very similar, except Blue Wallet also has Lightning and Blue Wallet can connect to your own Lightning node through a interface that you can install on it. And Umbral makes this very easy. Uh, I think it's called Thunderhub is the way that Blue Wallet talks to your Umbral node, your Lightning node. Blue Wallet can also connect to your own local Bitcoin node. So if you, in this context, Blue Wallet and Samurai are very similar, except Blue Wallet also has Lightning. But the thing to remember is that if you just install these wallets, they'll work right out of the box because they will connect to the wallet developer's remote node. That could have some negative privacy implications depending on what you're doing. But both will allow you to set up your own local node and, and be more private. The real difference is that Samurai Wallet is more privacy focused. Samurai Wallet enables you to send coins into a coin join 
and they have their own coin join pool. It's called Samurai Whirlpool. And it basically mixes Bitcoin together with other people's Bitcoin and anonymizes them. Samurai Wallet also has some additional transaction types. So it can send a transaction, which is just a regular Bitcoin transaction that looks like a coin join. And so depending on what you're doing, this can increase your privacy on the blockchain. I've used Samurai Wallet more than Blue Wallet. I just sort of installed and clicked through Blue Wallet. I haven't used it that much. So that's all I can say at the moment. Thanks for that question, Jupiter B. Now, our next question is from Thornton, Maryland. Installed Fountain to support you guys. I was on Sphinx Chat, but I couldn't find your show. Well, thanks for installing Fountain to support us. That's really a lot of effort to support us. I really appreciate that. I actually just installed or opened a Lightning Channel with the Sphinx node. So I'm going to try and use the Sphinx app to maybe get our podcast on there, but I haven't done it yet. So I'll let you know when I do that. Oh, and another boost from Jupiter B. Really liking the podcast. Do you know if there are other platforms like Fountain.fm to support other types of media via the Lightning Network? You know, frankly, I really don't. I imagine you're thinking about like streaming video or something like that. I think that Sphinx Chat has some integrations, but you mentioned Sphinx Chat in your other boost, so you probably know more about that than me. Okay, now here is a boost from A.W. Samat. Awesome at? Oh, awesome at. Awesome Matt. Oh my God, I can't believe I just got that. He sent this in the to the pod, the episode FUD versus education. You're just saying you're an MMT or to get me jazzed up uh, enough to send this boot it, boost in, right? Oh, uh, well, sort of. I don't know. Well, we can talk about that. You couldn't possibly support a fixed supply hard money standard and also think that John Maynard Keynes had it all figured out. Oh, this is a really good point. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to correct you on this. Before I found Austrian economics, I had only dabbled in Bitcoin as a cool tech project. But when I came back to it in 2020 as an anarcho-capitalist, it made sense to me. Economically, because it was like a gold standard, but better in every way. It was actually because of Chris that I looked into it in the first place, but I was still in high school at the time. Well, awesome, Matt. That is an awesome boost. And I'm glad that Chris was helpful to you on that journey. And this is really interesting. So the fact that you came back to Bitcoin as an anarcho-capitalist, it kind of ties in with Pete Rizzo's piece about Bitcoin monetary maximalists. If you're into anarcho-capitalist, gold standard, hard money ideas, the Bitcoin monetary maximalism argument is very compelling. And I'm not disagreeing with you. I think it makes a lot of sense. Now, why am I saying I'm an MMTer? So I am being a little apocryphal because to be clear, I think that MMT gets some important things wrong. MMT essentially assumes that the US dollar is always going to be around and that the monetary world is somewhat fixed. And therefore, you can kind of abuse the heck out of your currency by running budget deficits. But you can also use clever policy to sort of suck liquidity out of the system to prevent inflation from getting out of control. Now, you can kind of hear the problem right there. MMT sort of requires good policy, like clever, technocratic, well-executed policy to work. And if you try it and you don't have the skill to kind of pull it off, you're going to run into problems. Like, I think they would even agree with that. The other issue with MMT is that they sort of brush off the inflation concerns around MMT. But the thing is, there's not actually a consensus model of inflation in contemporary economics. The Federal Reserve itself has studied the inflation problem extensively and concluded that they don't know how it works. So MMT doesn't really provide many reassurances that if you double down on MMT, you won't wreck your currency and end up in essentially a hyperinflationary environment. And I think that leads directly to the darker side of MMT. If you kind of think it through, you sort of end up in a world where you need capital controls and intense financial surveillance to sort of trap people in the currency that you're inflating and also sucking liquidity out of it. Because basically, if there are exits to your MMT system, I would say MMT is more an approach to monetary and fiscal policy that is definitely going to trash your currency a bit. Like you are not prioritizing protecting people's purchasing power at all if you have an MMT type inspired policy. So people are going to run for the exits and you kind of need to close the exits. So MMT is scary in that respect. But here's why I like it. So one, I linked to a video of uh, Stephanie Kelton, who's kind of the, the face of MMT today talking. And 
I, I suggest you, you listen to it because honestly, she's a very inspirational speaker and she points out that there are a lot of large social and environmental problems that will need sort of mass mobilization and huge amounts of resources to solve. And frankly, government is the only institution in human societies that can deploy those kinds of resources at scale. And MMT is essentially a way to justify and say we can do big policy when previously more conservative fiscal voices shouted down big, kind of exciting, and perhaps very impactful policy. I I think that there is an inspirational element to MMT. And also, think of Rohan Gray. Rohan Gray is someone who's actually writing congressional legislation that is trying to fight for digital private e-cash. He's doing more for the fight for privacy than, you know, any Austrian economist I know about, frankly. So these people are not all bad, and they have some really interesting ideas. Now, the rest of why I like MMT might get a little technical. Technical? I don't know. It's sort of nerding out about economics. If you're not interested in that, just skip ahead a minute or two. So one thing I want to want to correct Awesome Matt on is that he conflates John Maynard Keynes and MMT. In fact, MMT is what's called a non-heterodox economic theory. Modern economics is essentially has three groupings: Keynesianism, Marxist economics, and non-heterodox economics which includes both the Austrian school and MMT. Now, Keynesian economics is a hot mess. I can say that as someone who studied it. I love that's my opinion. I mean, maybe we'll get Paul Krugman in the chat calling me a fool. That would be great. What is Keynesianism? It's hard to say, right? It's a philosophy that's been around for a long time. It can kind of be summed up as in times of plenty, the government should save. In times of scarcity, the government should spend. Kind of smooth out economic cycles. That's sort of the the textbook definition today. But Keynes, actually, his views changed a lot during his life. He only came up with the Bancor after a commodity crisis, interestingly enough, an oil crisis. The major Keynesian voices, I'm thinking of, say, Larry Summers or Ben Bernanke, whoever, uh, white men in suits who've worked for the U.S. government or institutions at some point, these are Keynesians. And they're never really held to account for their opinions because they're Keynesians and Keynesianism just slowly over time kind of forgets all the times it was wrong and they stop talking about the things that were clearly wrong. They are also openly uninterested in how the world actually works. So Larry Summers is pretty famous for saying that he's not particularly concerned about the minutia of how quantitative easing affects liquidity in financial markets and how this money and liquidity sort of moves through the economy. He doesn't really care about how the economy works. And MMT actually does. MMTers are very interested in describing the actual mechanics of how money moves through the economy. And I think they estimate the human ability to manage complex systems, but they point out that thinking about the economy like you think about your household budget is the wrong way to go. It's a, it's a completely different animal, and there are different constraints that aren't necessarily obvious. And so I really like MMT because I think it's advancing and challenging economic orthodoxy. It also is probably going to support expansionist monetary policies. But, you know, Keynesianism did that too. So textbook Keynesianism is when the economy is expanding, create a budget surplus at a government level and then spend that surplus into the economy when the economy is shrinking. But that's never really happened. Instead, what you get is interest rate cycles, where over a 40-year period, interest rates have been cut from a high of 18% to a low of 0%. And this essentially creates a debt cycle buildup that is probably going to end in a massive crash. Essentially, Bitcoin sort of insulates you from the massive crash. And that is cool. So if you're into Bitcoin, I think it's cool to also kind of be interested in MMT and what they're going to do. Because if you're in the Bitcoin life raft, do you really care if someone's playing around with dynamite on the Titanic? The ship is sinking anyway. Maybe they're going to light up some fireworks. I don't know. I'm, I'm happy to let them try and I'll cheer them as I row my lifeboat away from that hot mess. So those are my thoughts. And thank you so much for asking. Awesome, Matt. Appreciate the questions. Okay, we also have, oh, this is great. 
uh, Sir Lurksalot sent 1337 sats. That's leet, because one looks like an L. So leet, elite, it's kind of a gamer joke. They, uh, and he sent this for this week's episode, Introduction to Decentralized Exchanges. Thanks for the episode. I found BISC very interesting, and I appreciate the explanations of the ways 2 of 2 and 2 of 3 multisig work. Love the podcast, Dad. Hey, thanks so much. Okay, now our last two boosts. On FUD versus education, at user, and then a, a long number is the sender. So I think this was a fountain podcast user who hasn't changed their username from a default. And I think he's talking about our joking around about Elon. And this user says, I am sure he takes two thumbs and points to himself saying, I'm the Musk. Yeah, I could see Elon doing that. He, he seems pretty into himself. And then the same user sends another message. And this, I think, was in reference to me saying that Fukushima was really not so bad. He replies, yeah, telling my Japanese wife that Fukushima was a win that's not going to go over well, Raffle. Okay, good point. I also did preface that statement with saying that it was a controversial opinion. I still stand by it. Fukushima, it got hit 10 times harder than anyone ever thought it did, and it didn't blow up that much. Pretty well engineered in retrospect. Okay, so that is it for this week. If you are interested in supporting the show, I suggest checking out a podcasting 2.0 app like the Fountain Podcast app or Breeze Wallet. Then you can send us messages and make jokes. Always a good time. Next week, I will be recording again with Chris. And in the meantime, have a good one. Gosh, that was very anticlimactic. I need like, a, like an outro saying or something. <laughs>